Hi and hello, Watchfans, and welcome to another edition of The Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighbourhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today, I am joined by my friend, my countryman, Richard Bence of Studio Underdog. He's in the virtual studio on the other side of the channel to talk to me today, not just about the origins of the company, who he is as a man and a watchmaker, but also where the company is going to be going. Now it is about to reach its two-year anniversary. Richard, thanks for joining me, mate. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm good, yeah. Thank you uh, Thank you very much for, for having me. I can't quite believe that, yeah, coming up to two years, it, it literally feels... It feels like two weeks, really, more than uh, more than two years. But I guess a lot, a lot has happened uh, <laughs> has happened in that time. I can definitely understand that feeling because, of course, you're always busy and things are always changing. And you're constantly putting out fires as a new business owner. But when you think back on, say, the first release or the first time you sent out a press release to journalists and you kept your fingers crossed that people would pick it up and talk about it, that must feel like a million years ago now, surely. Yeah, that that's true. That's true. There's so so many elements of the business where you know I'm constantly running constantly doing things that time absolutely flies but I've kind of I've I've tried for myself to sort of document certain elements so I've still got you know some screen recordings of of when I first hit live you know to to launch the pro- product I've still got um for some of the the press outreach that I was doing rather than just an email I would kind of reach out via video so I've still you know got all that and occasionally I'll, I'll go back and, and look and sort of, you know, reminisce. And, and that is something that feels like a distant rem- memory. Yeah, that very much feels like a lifetime ago. Do you keep that content just for your own amusement or your own uh, ability to remind yourself how far you've come? Or are you actually going to put it into something that can be consumed by the followers of Studio Underdog? Because as I understand it, and from a personal perspective, I know that you have a great deal of people who are great fans of your work thus far. I mean... Since so much of that stuff was done right at the start, I absolutely would not have had the uh, the foresight to be uh, to be kind of getting that sort of content, thinking that it would be useful as a, as an asset or useful as part of yeah any marketing project. So it was very much just done uh, for myself. Something that if the business was a success, it would be interesting to look back on. You know, if it wasn't, it would be something that I could still look back on as a learning experience and, you know, proud that I did it. So at the time it was it was very much for myself, but I enjoy looking back on it. And I, I'm sure, yeah, if, if, if the time comes or if there's something, a way to kind of put it in place and, and share that story, um, it would be good to do so at some point. But not something I've put too much thought into uh just yet. It is great to have it there though if you ever should find a way to use it and distribute it to your followers because I'm sure there's a lot of people who are very interested in the story. Some of them of course because they want to follow in the path that you've already walked Mm. and others because they are just interested in you as a person. So why don't you give us a little bit of background first in that regard? You as a person, as a man separate from the company, where do you come from? What was your upbringing like? What's your background? What's your education etc etc? How Give us an idea of who you were when you first stepped into the watchmaking game. Sure. So I was, well, I guess the the background is I was a product designer. My background is is very much kind of rooted in design. I that's what I studied at university. Absolutely loved uh, loved the degree, loved the course. Um, studied in in Nottingham uh, on the on the product design course there. And when I graduated, it was very much a case of 
trying to get the the first job in London that I possibly could. That was the main goal. So I was aiming for a consultancy so I could have, you know, varied design briefs, but uh, those were super competitive. So I was very much ready to take any design role uh, that was offered to me. And fortunately, the first one that I was offered was um, for a, a company that design and develop and, uh, and manufacture to an extent um, watches, which I, so I, I, you know, I went along to the interview, borrowed my dad's watch um, for that interview because I had no knowledge or, or interest at that time in the industry. I just didn't know it existed. Got that job, was designing uh, character watches, children's watches, you know, Darth Vader watches and, uh, and the like which I enjoyed. Um, but it was, that was very much the, the door opening on this industry industry and uh, a discovery from there. And, and from that, you know, Darth Vader watch that opened, yeah, opened the door to me learning about mechanical watches and the history of horology. And I just, yeah, fell head over heels in, in love with the industry. And that was, that was my in, I guess. Um, and in lockdown, started started on my own little passion project, which, yeah, that was two years ago now, and uh, and it's 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 turned into a full time gig and and something that I I really enjoy doing. So for anyone that hasn't seen your watches before, maybe you could just give us a little idea of what makes them special aesthetically and what they've got going on behind the dial in terms of the mechanics. Sure. So essentially, the the brief I set myself as as a design brief during lockdown in terms of kind of coming up with a watch brand. And when I set this brief, I didn't have huge ambitions. It was very much a design brief. I'd set myself a project and end of project was putting some renders online. So it didn't feel like such a daunting project. You know, I I was very capable of of, of sort of the design process. And and since I'd kind of almost set that out as, a, as almost a stepping stone without realizing it, um, I felt in control. So the brief I gave myself was to, to design a product that was, hmm, how, what's the best way to explain it? I guess it was a very playful approach to horology and that playful approach in a really serious industry that juxtaposition is is what I was really drawn to, and treading that line um, perfectly was the design challenge. So when I was, you know, specking the watch, I wanted to use a, a movement that I f- found incredibly interesting. Um, so I used the the Seagull ST19, which is uh, a really really brilliant movement, a mechanical hand wound um, chronograph. Um, that has some real history to it, you know, designed in the 1940s um, by the Swiss, originally a Venus movement and sold to the Chinese Air Force in the 60s. So that was one, you know, one place where I was kind of drawn to. And then on a flip side, sort of developing dial designs and colorways that were really playful and quite fun and silly. So the best way to, you know, to, to sum that up was, you know, that juxtaposition was my focus. Um, and then just making sure that I got all the little details right and all the all the design decisions that I were make, was making 
was to make sure that I would tread that line very carefully. I wanted it to be silly, but I wanted it to be serious. Um, and that's, you know, that's where most people may recognize the, the kind of the, the watermelon chronograph, which is what uh, the brand is sort of currently, I guess, known for. At least that's what uh, puts Studio Underdog on the on the map, as it were. That's the one, of course, that sticks out in everyone's mind, especially mine as well. When I first saw the watches, how did you get in touch with me? Did you send me an email just randomly at Fratello? I can't remember. But um, it certainly stole my attention. And that was the one that I've always... Um, hungered for shall we say um what was the inspiration for the watermelon and for the other two you had the panda and then i think was it called desert sky the yeah other, yeah the yeah one? so each of them each of them very very different um you know very different inspirations i think you know there was no eureka moment in terms of the watermelon i wish i had some fascinating story of yeah how a watermelon you know fell through fell through my window and and that was it kind of thing but um it was it was more just how sometimes I'd see colors that would just work so well together. Um, so the watermelon I thought was fun and playful, and I liked the contrast, the the vibrancy, the contrast of the the pink and um, and the green, and how again that was kind of silly and fun. But in terms of the other other design, so the desert sky, for example, that is. Uh, that that colorway is based off a, a pair of Nike trainers that I saw, a pair of Air Max 97s. Um, and it had this, yes, yeah, sky blue, sandy color. Um, and it just, I just thought it worked. And I said, right, let's, you know, let's see what that looks like uh, on, a, on a watch style. Um, the Panda was kind of a play on, on your most traditional style of chronograph, a, a Panda. And so mine was a, a slightly goofy approach to that where, you know, I wanted to use those colors, but there was, so for example, on the, on the tip of the chronograph, there's a, a little green element, which is inspired by a panda's favorite delicacy, you know, a, a bamboo shoot. So lots of little, just silly kind of playful design decisions um, for that. So yeah, very much it was, it was a case of colors that I thought worked together and, and then sort of running with uh you know, with the playful, playful elements that that would help me uh, kind of put down on paper and and start mocking up. So I guess if you're following a, a path from color first and then fitting the story or the name or the character of the watch to it afterwards, you're going to have a lot of ideas, a lot of things coming in, new inspirations all the time from the world around you. What have you encountered since the release of the initial three and then obviously the aubergine special edition that we did? Or well, you did on your own, and we promoted it for Tello for a good cause, which I thought was a a wonderful thing. Um, maybe mention that a little bit if uh, people don't know about the special edition project we did together, and then tell us what kind of colours we might get to see in the future. Sure. So the aubergine that was a, a really fun sort of project to work on. So the backgrounds for that was. Um, I just launched in around uh, March, yeah, two years ago, March 2021. And then eight, when April came around, I was still very much busy, you know, making those watches to fulfill those orders that I'd had. Um, but one of my favorite things uh, or, or times in the year for, for watch launches is, um, is the 1st of April and some of the big brands come up with an April Fool's, some ridiculous concept. And what always makes a great April Fool's is something that's 
slightly believable or, you know, a small percentage of people, if they don't realize the date, will go, oh, my God, that is crazy. Um, so I sort of uh, came came to, uh, inverted brackets, the market with a new colorway, which was going to be the aubergine. And what was unique about this one was the dial was going to be made from a genuine piece of aubergine. And what that would mean is it would patina over time, essentially start to get moldy and gross. Um, and that was that was the joke, you know, uh, but but what came from that was people were going, right, this is hilarious, but the colorway of this is is brilliant and 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 they wanted it. And it's similar, I guess, to the watermelon in terms of a silly inspiration on a on a serious mechanical timepiece was what what really captured people. Um, so a year on, um, I kind of, that's when I sort of reached out to, to Fratello, to you yourself, actually, because, you know, you were one of the very first people to, to kind of cover the brand. And from when, when I launched, of course, nobody knew of Studio Underdog. Nobody knew what I was about. It's to some extent to, to press. It can be a bit of a risk talking about a new upcoming brand that, actually may not come to fruition or may have challenges and and may not live up to expectations so i understand from a press perspective uh, when it's a new business it's it's not always uh yeah it's it's not always that easy to kind of pick up and start talking about so i was really appreciative you know for you for, for and to fratello for, for for covering the business fr- from the start really so when I had this idea for actually introducing the aubergine, you know, I came to you to see if it was something that uh, that, that you guys at the time wanted to, to be a part of. Unfortunately, you, know, you, you were interested, which was amazing. So we made um, 50 pieces of that, a limited edition with um, 100% of the profits being donated to cancer research. So a super fun project to work on. And it was great to see those watches actually come to market, although I do constantly get requests for for that to be to be reintroduced and and people sad to have missed out but the great thing is about the kind of the format at least of this chronograph collection is the possibilities are really endless you know it's just about colors that work telling a playful story um so that's what i always say to people is you know there's there's plenty more uh, exciting ideas in the pipeline and sometimes it's just a case you know I, I was at an event a couple of weeks ago and um, a customer came up and said, oh, you know, a mango. I'd love to see a mango um, as an inspiration. And, and straight away, I start thinking about it. I'm thinking, actually, you know, those colors could really work. I wonder what that would look like. Um, so, yeah, possibilities are endless. And I'm always, you know, keen to hear what what people would like to see, whether it's the case I just make it as a render to, to see what people think or if... Uh, sometimes you know it, it may come to fruition <laughs> fruition <laughs> fruition being the, the key word um, yeah. there is a lot of inspiration on the fruit and veg and even just generally food side of things i remember when we were running the campaign for the aubergine special edition someone suggested a hot dog inspired dial do you remember that <laughs> yeah i think i've had hot dog uh, i'm sure there was pizza as well i think was what mm-hmm. was one of them mm-hmm. uh 
Yeah. Well, I guess that begs the question, when on earth will Studio Underdog do a collaboration with Second Second, uh, two of the most disruptive forces in the industry now? He could easily do a, a food-themed seconds hand for one of your sub-dials. That would be all right, wouldn't it? For sure. No, he's a, he's a really talented, really talented guy. I think I'm actually, he's coming to, to London in, in a couple of weeks. So I do plan on, on sort of uh, meeting him and, and having a chat. And as you said, he is sort of a, a bit of a design powerhouse in terms of he's got an incredibly unique style and, and DNA and, and some of the collaborations that he's he's done have been really, really brilliant. Um, so yeah, I, I'm looking forward to, to chatting with him and who knows, we'll, we'll see where that, that conversation goes. Um, but I'm, I'm sure something will come of it eventually. Oh, I can't wait to see that. He's a fascinating chap and very talented, that's for sure. And uh, he's also been on the show. So uh, he's... Um, a friend of the real time show, and I'm sure soon to be a very good friend of Studio Underdog. But he also faced some uphill battles when he first got into the industry because nobody really knew what he was doing because it was such a novel idea that he had. In the same way that your watchers, and it's an overused word, but in your case, I think is relevant, did actually disrupt that lower price bracket because people couldn't really get their head around why we had such original dial designs and uh, hitherto rarely seen colors in the watch industry with a very credible movement for a very attractive price. But tell me this, when you first approached watch media, people like me and all of my uh, esteemed colleagues in the established media landscape, what was it like? What challenges did you run into? Did people take you seriously? Did people send you uh, a paid press kit back immediately? Was it scary? And do you regard it as a success or is anything you'd do differently now if you were to advise a young brand owner going out into that field that you did? That's a really good question. So there's, I guess, a couple of points there that I want to cover. So one of the reasons that I think I was able to, in a small way, kind of disrupt or or at least be able to do something different was the fact that when I launched, I wasn't thinking commercially. I wasn't, you know, when I introduced my project, it wasn't a case of, right, how can I sell the most watches? How can I you know, bring a product to market that that everyone will like. Because, you know, had I been thinking that way, the narrative would have likely been, we're a new brand here to disrupt the industry, um, you know, which which I'm sure as, as someone in the press, you have seen countless, countless times. Whereas my approach was a, was a lot more a lot more honest, maybe, or it was at least a different approach in that I came to market with, a product that I thought me and, you know, three other people on this planet might like, one of those being, you know, my mum. So um, already my approach from the outset wasn't commercial, which I think was a point of difference. It was somewhat refreshing, possibly. Um, But even that in itself isn't enough, I guess, to to get everyone excited. As I said kind of uh, earlier, it's a risk for uh, for people in press to start talking about a new brand that that doesn't exist or may not even have products out there yet because and I'm sure again I'm sure you've experienced this firsthand there's been some brands that have have come to market promised the world got some some really great press but by the time they they've come to market the product doesn't live up to standards or or things have changed and it doesn't live up to expectations and that is obviously then reflects, you know, can reflect on anyone that has, you know, has has been picking it up, uh, as it were. So 
from the start, yes, reaching out to, you know, to press was was daunting, but it was also challenging really for, for people to, you know, to, to believe in the brand and trust the brand. Um, you are, as I said, were one of the first people to, you know, to talk about it, which was hugely exciting for me. Um, one of the very first people that I reached out to and one of my focuses um, was Jody from from Just One More Watch. You know, that was uh, at the time kind of, I guess, uh, I, I believe to be kind of my key market and really who I wanted to get in front of. And that was one, for example, where I realized, look, he's going to get so many emails every single day, every single week of new aspiring watch brands, you know, with, with the email of the body being 70% the same in terms of, you know, an introduction as to who they are, what the, what the product is, how they're different, how they're going to disrupt, etc. So when I messaged him, I said, okay, well, I'm going to, I want to sort of show that I'm doing things differently. And instead of sending him a, you know, a paragraph in, in the format of an email, I made, I made a video, I made a two minute video where I kind of did it in his style. You know, I'm a, I'd been a follower, of, a subscriber of his for a long time and, and a fan uh, watching all his videos. So I knew the little kind of the nuances and the little uh, in jokes, I guess, it, I guess as, as it were, in terms of how he talks and, you know, let's flip the camera and have a look and et cetera. So I made a two minute video that was not, not quite a skit, but it, it was a means to, to try and do something a little bit different, talk to him in a, f- a form of media that he loves and uses, a YouTube video, um, as well as it's much easier to communicate who I am, what I'm about, show the product in a video format. So that was, you know, that I guess that was an example of an approach that was that was slightly different. And, you know, he got back to me very quickly saying, you know, this is this is exactly kind of the thing that I'd you know, want to talk about. And, and again, he was one of the, the people to, to talk about the, the brands before I'd launched. Um, so I guess that, that was a case where at the start, it was challenging to, you know, I had to scream and shout and bang my chest to, to get people to kind of hear about me. Um, whereas as the brand sort of matured, even though it's only two years, I'd say as it matured, press you know or or the like saw that here we go there's there's product on the market customers are happy that's the i guess the the main sort of vouch right maybe we can start you know getting some samples in and seeing what we think of it and because you know my product i believe lives up to or possibly even supersedes people's expectations um, despite me having what i think is some some awesome sort of photography and assets and great ways to kind of communicate the brand, uh, the brand digitally, nothing can, can quite do a product justice as, as having it in hand. Unfortunately, that's, that's sort of the way um, that people have reacted. Uh, in my case, where getting the product in hand, they're even more impressed than, than they may have already been from seeing it online. So that's great to hear that it's actually validated everything you did in the early days, the feedback from the customers and the satisfaction they've expressed. And now that's edged open the door to 
established watch media even further because you're quite right actually no one else has ever mentioned that example on air but when we do get approached but cold by brand new brands we are always a bit skeptical as in well how good are they we want to get them in our hands first we want to look at them we want them to go to market and it's a bit of a chicken and the egg problem for new brand owners because you need the coverage but it's hard to get the coverage until you've got a model out there and it's hard to get a model out there and successful until you have the coverage. So that was the early stages of your brand and its development, the first year, first year and a half, I suppose. But now, like we've said, you've, you've just reached past your two-year anniversary. What do you know now that you really didn't know a year ago? How different has the second year been and what can we expect from the third year and beyond? The, the first year was, was a case of almost proof of concept you know, as I said, I thought it was going to be me and three other people that that would actually kind of like my playful approach. Um, but from when I launched and the kind of the, the first year, the success of the launch was right. This is proof of concept that that kind of my vision is something that that the market wants and is 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 interesting to to enthusiasts, which was great because you know the design brief that I'd set was very much to design a product that I liked, and because. I'm an enthusiast and because I was so sort of uh, ingrained in yeah in the enthusiast community in the industry because it kind of met my needs um you know it it just so happened that that it also kind of met the needs of of people yeah other enthusiasts so first year was very much kind of proof of concept the last year now as well because i've i've released a few new items but it's been you know still in this chronograph format um it's been just about making little refinements making uh i guess uh, tweaks something that i've i've been focusing on for this year and actually that i plan to focus on um you know a, a lot more in, in the future and i think is as a huge scope for not just building my business but but building an industry is working with more uh, British suppliers and working with, and, and partnering with with British independents. So from when I launched to, to now, some of the changes are I'm working with uh, the Strat Taylor, who's a, a British independent who who uh, makes makes um, makes my straps now, um, and that's something that I wanted to communicate. Where a lot of other brands might uh, per, you know purchase that kind of. Um, you know, those kind of straps, but ask the strap tailor just to say, oh, you know, take your logo off or put ours on. I wanted the, that partnership to, you know, to, to be to be talked about. I want to be able to talk about working with British Independence. So he's got his logo on, on my strap. And that's something that I'm very happy to to talk about and, and get excited about. We're, you know, this year we've we've also, uh, or last year even, we've, we've started assembling all the watches um, here in the UK as well. And I think a lot of brands aren't necessarily doing that because it's it's cheaper to not do that. It's it's much cheaper to even have Swiss made uh, the, the, um, on the dial than, than get the watches assembled here in the UK. How do you do that? Do you work with somebody that uh, is independent in the vicinity of your HQ or what's the relationship like with you and your watchmakers? I've been working with uh, a company called Horologium, a great watchmaker called uh, Raphael, where that originally we, we started talking when I just launched my brand. He was, you know, in terms of his business, um, his business was also in its infancy. Um, and originally the relationship was he was going to offer uh, after sales support. 
as that conversation kind of grew, we said, I said, okay, well, actually, you know, he can do uh, the quality control element in the UK before watches are shipped, just uh, as, as an added, uh, you know, an added measure to make sure that, that the quality standards were were met. Whereas again, a lot of brands would either ship directly from from China or directly from from Switzerland from the factories. This was an added step that we were doing, and because he did, you know, such such a brilliant job, that that relationship has has, has matured. Um, and now he's doing uh, doing the assembly here in the UK for for Studio Underdog, um, which is amazing. You know, it's something that um, a lot of other brands, as I said, aren't necessarily doing, um, possibly due to the cost, or maybe they just don't that don't see the the value there, or at least at least not yet. Whereas it's something that I think is of of huge value, huge importance. And as as far as I'm aware, you know, Studio Underdog based on that is already in terms of quantity of watches is already in the top two or three, you know, largest brands in terms of assembling watches in the UK. And that is, that is not saying studio underdog is, is a, you know, a big fish. It's just showing how few people are really doing it. Um, so that's something that I, I find really important. I, I'm really passionate about kind of continuing to do. And it's something that I see huge opportunity in, in terms of, um, you know, the years to come. I want to continue communicating, but also in a, in a really honest way as to how, you know, how my business operates, who I'm working with, so people can get, get a feel for what's going on behind the scenes, which is something that, again, I think a lot of other brands will always try and hide away from or, um, or, or kind of try and communicate a message that isn't that they what's the best try and communicate a message that isn't always totally transparent even if it's honest it might not be transparent so that's something that that, that i think is incredibly important that's interesting so for those of us that can't make it over to the uk right now and sort of visit you at your facility or office or hq could you give us a little virtual tour in a day in the life of Richard Bence, what's it like when you get to work or when you get up in the morning? What's the first thing you do? Where do you go? Do you have an office? Do you visit your watchmaker? Tell us a little bit about that. So every every day is different, but um, to you know, my in terms of the the business model, it is incredibly lean. It is incredibly simple. I you know I have a, a, a two bed flat. One of those bedrooms I have turned into a little office space, so that's where I'm sat currently. Um, so my commute to work is is all of about twelve seconds. Um, um, my uh, my watchmaker is is based in Reading, so I'm I head head up there fairly frequently. So I, I'm going there in a couple of days actually, just to uh, you know oversee the the current production and the assembly, which we're we're currently doing for for the core range for for some outstanding pre orders. So every day is is incredibly different. Um, one thing that I, I guess you know I'm, I'm I'm struggling with now, or something that's a challenge currently, is when I started, you know, the design process, the marketing, the storytelling, which was hugely important, and and was what I was spending the vast majority of my time doing. At the moment, I still know that that element of my business is hugely important, but suddenly I'm 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 having to run a business. There's all sorts of things, whether it's, you know, figuring out finance, doing my accounts, um, 
answering customer emails, etc. Suddenly the days just just disappear, and I realize, oh, you know, I've I've had a design project, you know, in mind for for weeks. Sometimes months will go by before I, I'm able to put pen to pencil. So that's something that I'm I'm trying to kind of figure out as as I grow and and as I learn. Um, but that's just the nature of a of, of a small business that it, that has has grown fairly quickly. Um, at the moment, it, it's still still just me um, managing Studio Underdog. As I said, I've I've got partners that I'm able to work with other independent companies. But in terms of just Studio Underdog, it it is me. However, I'm I'm pleased to say that the team will be will be doubling in size later this year as I've uh, I've made my first hire, which is uh, exciting but but daunting at the same time. Well, that is exciting. So, what role is your new colleague going to be taking on? So, this is the, with the you know with startup roles are always pretty varied, but um, the main focus <laughs> of the role is already two roles in one. It's kind of uh, managing from an operational side as well as customer customer service and support, which is something that you know that that is key. I, I genuinely want to make sure that you know, 100% of my customers, you know, are satisfied, which is already an impossible target, really, but I'll, I'll do whatever I can to, uh, <laughs> to try and achieve that. So th- that's the main, uh, the main part of the role. But I'm sure when it comes to uh, comes to real life, it'll be even more varied than that. So but that's the that's the nature of a startup and, and hopefully something that is uh, quite exciting, quite a quite a good opportunity. Looks like you're doing pretty well so far in terms of customer satisfaction. You've got a 4.8 rating on Trustpilot with 92% five-star reviews, which is pretty good, and 0% one-star reviews. So nobody thinks you're a complete dickhead. That's a bonus. No, not yet, anyways. Not yet. No, um... <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Don't say anything stupid on this podcast. Keep it, keep it up. You're doing well. <laughs> so talking about the company growing, what's the next step in terms of product release? Do you dare, and I mean this literally, release a completely new product because a lot of the successful small independents and i'm dubbing studio underdog as that rather than a micro brand as a sign of respect for your unique design and your approach to the watchmaking industry a lot of small independents they have great success with their first model which is the one that upends the apple cart so to speak so let's think of say seven friday as a perfect example they dined out on that case shape and mixed up the colors and the strap combos and everything else for years and years and years. They exploited their five years of cool to perfection. And then they felt the pinch of people getting a bit tired of the original. So they tried some new models and nobody really took to them in the same way. So do you have an idea for a second model? I'm sure it could be a a couple of years off at least because there's plenty more meat on the bone with the chronograph as it is and new colorways and new projects and new partnerships. But do you have that in mind for Studio Underdog? Or are you going to take it in a different direction? No, I absolutely, uh, yeah, absolutely have that uh, have that in mind, and and uh, I've been developing some some new new products, not just in terms of new colorways, but a, a new model. I've um, I've mentioned uh, previously that uh, a field watch is is something that I've been working on, and kind of looking back in terms of when I first started the the renders or, or first started on that project. It must be coming close to, to 18 months ago now from where, when I kind of put pen to paper to, to get that rolling, which is which is crazy, crazy to think that, you know, it's it's taken, you know, it's, it's already been that long since I started working on that. Um, and that was something that it's, it's something that I am excited to, to release, because for the reasons that you said, that second second product, that second album can really help to shape the future of a brand. 
you know, it, it can help to define whether a brand is just a, is it a one hit wonder or is there, is there more to the brand? Um, and it's, you know, I, I see Studio Underdog being even more successful than it is currently in many years to come. And in order to, to be able to, to achieve that, I need to, to kind of show more as to what the brand is about. Um, and I think, yeah, the term kind of second album is, is the best way of putting it. You know, a, sec- a successful second album is, is always slightly different to the first. It's somewhat unexpected, but uh, u- unique and exciting in, in its own right. So it's something that I'm excited, really excited to launch and, and originally had, had planned on launching it, uh, it towards the end of last year. But to, again, just kind of make sure that, you know, I'm having to make decisions that will ensure that Studio Underdog is around for a long time. So rather than kind of trying to, to make the most of certain opportunities that may be available now, I'm, I'm looking for longevity. So, so for example, even though I am ready and, and was ready pretty much to, to launch uh, a new field watch towards the end of last year, um, I've decided that actually at the moment, my priority lies in, in fulfilling outstanding orders. So I, the last time I opened up a, a pre-order was uh, in September and I'm still, still currently fulfilling those orders um, to make sure those uh yeah, customers can get their watch, you know, enjoy their watch before suddenly they're seeing things on social of, of, of a new watch coming. And that just comes down to if I was the customer in that in that uh, in that case, if I had a an outstanding order that I'd been waiting a while for and suddenly the brand is is launching new, you know, new watches, I'd be going, Oh, well, hold on a minute, you know, what about me? So Again, it was a tough decision at the time, but as soon as I made it, I realized it was the right one. Um, so it's just for me about taking things kind of slow and steady, as excited as I am to, to launch something new and and kind of help to shape what the DNA of the brand is. Um, sometimes I have to, you know, to slow down a bit because at, at the moment, people don't necessarily know what Studio Underdog is about. At the moment, I'm sure a lot of people, you know, a lot of people quite understandably think that Studio Underdog, you know, I'm the watermelon man. Uh, that's it. You know, anything new has to be a, a watermelon on a dial. Um, or, you know, is it just, you know, fruity flavors or, or you know, delicacies on a dial? Is, is that the brand? Something new allows me to really communicate what I see the brand as. Um, so, as I said, it's something that I'm I'm really excited to do, and uh, and something that I guess to an extent I I have confidence in as as being the kind of the right decision. Well, you sound confident, and your justifications for waiting and uh, keeping your powder dry are absolutely on point. I have to say, it's really heartening to hear that kind of patience from a new brand owner. Because I mean, I've been in intimate conversations with many people in your position, some further along the road and some just starting out and one of the hardest things to do is to control that enthusiasm for the new models models that are due to come out in two or three or four or five years and you know whenever any designer or creator comes up with some great new concept they are wont to believe in it wholeheartedly and desperate to share it with the world but strategizing your release calendar is tough and takes discipline and you clearly have it and you made the right decision by prioritizing your customers and certainly the perception of your brand in the eyes of your customers. That was wise, I think. Um, 
not necessarily wise beyond your years, but wise beyond the company's years and certainly wiser than I've seen many people act in the same situation. I have a question also about your longer term ambitions in the watch industry. You've got off to such a flying start and there's such a wealth of good feeling towards you because I think you are just generally a very likable person and believable and transparent in all the right ways, uh, ardent and passionate uh, and all the things that people could ask for in a new brand owner. But do you aspire to work in a different price bracket at some point? Do you have wild ambitions to be working with new calibers or new materials or very ambitious designs with a high grade of manufacturing and a huge cost associated therefore? And if so, is that something you would ever pursue under the Studio Underdog's label or would you consider starting a new brand? And I'm talking many, many years down the line, if that's something you've considered. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the way I look at it is so rather than sort of coming at it in terms of a, a price perspective and saying, oh, I'd love, you know, love to be designing products in, in X price tier or X price category, but because you know, the market has, has shown that already there, you know, when I made the changes such as, as moving certain parts of the supply chain to the UK, that was reflected in the price of the watch. You know, it, it was increased and, and no one really had any concerns. Uh, I don't believe I actually had a, had a single email where people were saying, hold on, what's this price increase due to? Whether it's a case that a, they still felt the price was was justified, or whether they saw the value in in you know the 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 add-ons as it were, or the changes that I made, and so that was the kind of the first point where I realised, okay, well look, you know this this gives me an opportunity to work with um, you know different suppliers, more expensive suppliers, maybe using uh, different movements, you know Swiss movements for example are already you know a, a large step up in price. I think already it's 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 clear that that's something that at least in within the studio underdog brands the market wants. You look then, you know, at, at a totally different price point. You look at the likes of of Moser who are doing something that is high high horology, but they're also still able to to poke fun at the industry. You know, it's still there's still you know clearly there. I think there doesn't appear to be. Um, you know, a ceiling uh, as to as to what someone's budget is if they if they want uh, something that is of mechanical uh, you know significance or horological significance, while also still being totally ridiculous. Then then you know there's products there and there's the, there's you know that the the Moser for example the I'm not ex- exactly sure what uh, which one it's called, but the one that looks exactly like um, an Apple Watch. And then you flip it over on the back, and it's this this beautiful uh, mechanical movement. You know, I, th- I think that's that's brilliant. That's that's hilarious. Um, I've not really put too much thought into yeah, super high horology, um, but certainly kind of looking to you know to make improvements or, or to to work with different suppliers. And because uh, the, the yeah, the, my customer base has shown that. They would be willing to, you know, to pay a premium for something unique or, or or whatever. It does kind of motivate me to to start experimenting a little bit more at a, at a slightly higher price point. Um, but it's 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 sort of almost something that I, I need to figure out uh, as I go. Really, um, we'll 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 see when uh, when the time comes. I haven't put too much thought as to whether it would be under the Studio Underdog brand. I don't know if that would be. A little bit confusing, you know, uh, an underdog 
watch um, at a at a significantly different price point. But uh, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I guess that is the question, isn't it? Whether people would get on board with that. I personally think that if you're ever going to shift gears that dramatically, starting a new brand, even making reference to the previous one as like from the founders of Studio Underdog is the way forward, you know, because you do want to try and convert your existing goodwill currency into uh, a future project. But at the same time, you don't want to muddy the waters too much. But talking of the clear waters as they exist right now, where can people find you physically in the coming months where will you be at watch fairs around the place will you be holding an open door event at all let us know where we can try the watchers on so i've signed up to i I try and sign up to as as many um physical uh you know events as i can Uh, you know i'm an online business it's difficult for me to get product in front of people and quite quite rightly people want to get hands-on before before they make a purchase so um, I'm doing a, a handful of events in the UK. We've got one coming up in the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure when this will go live, but um, there's one uh, on the 18th of February in, in, uh, up towards Birmingham. Um, you could watch it. I've signed up to um, all the wind up events. So there's one in uh, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, which I'm really excited about. Um, I went to the, the wind up in New York towards the end of last year. And that was, you know, my first time, first time in in the US. So it was it was quite an exciting trip and and really fun and and great to kind of meet enthusiasts, um, you know, over there. There's a huge uh, a huge enthusiast community in the US, um, and I'll, it's something that I'm I'm keen to do and 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 kind of explore more, you know, territories. I know there's a big community in in Singapore, for example, and. You know, even in the Middle East, um, you know, there's there's a sort of a, a desire and a demand for for micro brands or independents as well as high horology. So that's something that I'm I'm always keen to do, and, and and I'm excited to be able to do that now, a little bit more this year, especially considering when I launched, that wasn't an option. There was no physical events going on because it was in the midst of COVID. So. Uh, yeah, excited to kind of to jump in there, really. What kind of expense does that mean for a small brand? I mean, traveling around, especially to wind up fairs in San Francisco and New York. And by the way, hopefully I'll be there as well. So perhaps we can hang out and you can show me the new watches. I would love that. For sure, for sure. That That's going to cost a fair bit, right? How does it affect your annual budgeting when it comes to events? Because it'd be nice to be everywhere. Because like you say, getting products on people's wrists is really difficult for an online only business. But what do you do when you're faced with these decisions? How do you decide? For the ones in the UK, it's, you know, it's fairly easy to, you know, to justify purely in terms of uh, that that kind of physical exposure, as it were, you know, it's really good just to, you know, to meet people in the industry meet the community get watches on wrists and you know even if that means uh, you know on the books it's it's a loss it's still that is the opportunity there um and that's usually what i kind of am able to to justify it as a lot of other brands will it'll be a case of justifying based on on sales and sell through made at that event um i try and take a little bit of a different approach for the wind-ups, you know, the, the, the cost of the fare is, is more significant. It's um, having to, you know, to, to fly over and, the, you know, the costs are, are a lot higher there. So, uh, you know, I do plan to open up um, pre-orders at those physical fares. So where online currently and, and for the most part, you know, uh, there isn't any availability until I do a next uh, 
pre-order window. When I when I go to those those wind up fairs, I will have kind of pre-order availability. So again, it won't be products available there and then, but uh, th- there'll be a, a window uh, to order for anyone that does does come and, and, and sees me in person. Um, so that helps in a way to, to justify the costs. But for me, I, I, again, it just I think for this year, it's it's just going to be so important to 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 get watches in front of people, get you know get them on wrist, and and the the products themselves, as amazing as the photography is that I've got, I think clearly the when the the products are shared on social, people are engaged and and really like them nothing does them justice like like having them in hand the, the colors really pop so any opportunity to to to, to have that is is something i'm i'm really looking to to get involved with so on that note is there ever any scope for a retail network stocking studio underdog or is there simply not the margin in the price for the watches at the moment it's something that I've kind of I've started to experiment with. So at the moment, I have one retailer, which is uh, James Porter. So that's uh, up in Scotland, um, and it's really for me that was a, a means to kind of dip my toe in in something that I didn't understand or, or, or don't. Um, yeah, don't, don't. I'm taking it as a learning opportunity. In essence, it's something that I don't understand. It's quite different. Um, at the moment, on paper, again, it doesn't really make that much sense because. Already, I've got a high level of demand that I'm struggling to fulfil um, in terms of, of products. I'm still having to launch in in batches, and and that's how kind of it works online. So having a retail network doesn't really work at the moment. I'm trying to to learn and see see if that is something that that could work in the future. But it does change the business model. You know, as as much as people hate it, uh, the term you know cutting out the middleman. Uh, when it comes to a brand sort of launching and, and trying to communicate how they're selling direct to consumer, to an extent that is the case. There are there are lots of uh, of costs involved, quite understandably, uh, that come with a retail network or a distribution network. Um, there's a, there's a lot more steps and processes. Um, it is a great opportunity, obviously, to to get watches physically in front of people. People can go to a retail store and see them, but at the moment, it's not something um, that I'm focusing too much on. And at least for the, the near future, I really think my focus is on that kind of the direct consumer. And as long as I'm able to effectively communicate my products as I'm currently doing online, um, and I'm always constantly trying to make improvements in, in how I'm able to do that, I think that the direct consumer model is, is, is slightly better uh, for the time being. Well, it certainly doesn't sound like you need any help selling the products. I mean, it would be nice, I'm sure, for prospective buyers to get it on their wrist. But of course, we aren't talking about a watch that retails for five or 10,000 here. This is a watch that is more like 500 euros, pounds. I'm not exactly sure what the current exchange rate is for your watches, but it's around that that price point, right? So, I mean, that's a big difference because people are queuing up to buy these pieces. Like you say, your your issue rather than exposure and people being interested is actually more one of fulfillment so uh perhaps it'd be nice to have a few retail partners around the world just so people could see the products and so you could um build the brand by a high street presence in some way or another but ultimately at this point it clearly isn't necessary so question for you uh you said that you got into the watch industry almost not by accident but because you took a route to get a job 
in some form of design and ended up designing character watches, the Darth Vader watch, of course, which will go down in history and I'm sure one day be preserved in the Studio Underdog Museum for us all to come and see in 20 years' time. But are you now a watch guy? I know you're a watch brand owner and a watch designer, but are you a watch guy now? Like, are you interested in other brands as well? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that was originally when I kind of, you know, whilst designing that Darth Vader watch, that was my sort of a little bit of exposure to the industry. And and suddenly I, you know, I I discovered, uh, discovered it really. And from there, for the next six years before I'd launched, you know, started launching my own brand, that was it. I was, I, I was an enthusiast. I, you know, have have different watches in in my collection um, from other brands, I've re- ranging from yeah micro brands to you know to, to Swiss brands. Um, so I, that was it. I was I was very much a, an enthusiast an enthusiast first, which helped me when it came to kind of decision making. I was you know constant read uh, constantly reading up on on the latest releases and was was going to to Basel Worlds uh, to to see what was coming and. And that was it. It was it was it was a passion of mine uh, before I really even had any interest or, or, or knowledge that I wanted to uh, to bring a product to market. So a hundred percent. What's your favorite brand other than Studio Underdog? Ooh, um, it would have to be MBNF. I think. I just think what they're doing is is incredible. I think their story is amazing. Uh, I've recently bought uh, the the book um, from Max Busa, which is the the fifteen years the history of of MBNF and and I'm making my way through that and it, it's just such an incredible story and that their products are obviously uh, obviously totally unique and totally bonkers um, and and yeah a brand that I look up to and and obviously look up to to Max himself so. That 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 would be uh, that that's my go-to, I guess. Is yeah, I, I think it's still a, a way off before I can ever own one. But uh, <laughs> I like popping into uh, Watches of Switzerland on I think it's Regent Street. They've got a small MBNF boutique where they've uh, occasionally got uh, a couple of pieces in. So I always go and uh, eye those up and and uh, yeah. Do the retail staff know who you are? In watches of Switzerland. Funnily enough, yeah, they you know originally just as you know as, as as a punter that was coming in, and then I think at one point I I walked in with a Studio Underdog branded tote bag, um, you know, very very subtle, I know, um, and yeah, <laughs> uh, it was 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 picked up. Um, you know, a couple of the guys recognised it, and actually, uh, you know, a couple of the guys there said, "Oh, I've you know I've got my Studio Underdog on order." Um, <laughs> which is, you know, which is pretty, pretty mind, but mind blowing to me. Um, but, uh, but always exciting to, to see that, you know, my, my small little passion project has, um, you know, has got, I guess that the attention and, and, and these people who spend their day surrounded by high horology and, and beautiful Swiss watches also, you know, have, have the respect and the interest in, in something that I'm doing. So I think that always helps me realize that, Clearly, my approach is, you know, is is right and, and it's interest, you know, interesting to the right people. Yeah, I mean, you've captured the imagination of the watch-loving public. And you know what we should do? We should get you to come up to Manchester sometime and be part of a Red Bar Manchester event because I'm sure that the guys that we have attending those evenings would love to hear you speak on how you've gone about founding the brand and what your plans and vision are for it in the future. Yeah. One last question before we go. Okay, so what's the next 
dish on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> the next dish. There's a, there's, a, there's a few in the pipeline. There's a few samples uh, and whatnot that I'm working on. Um, I guess some, something that I've not spoken about yet, but it's it's still very early on in, in um, you know, in the development. But uh, yeah, I've only got myself to blame if, uh, you know, if it comes to bite me or if it never, it never releases. But something that, as I've mentioned, that I'm interested in kind of really communicating more uh, in the next few years and something that I'm really proud of is the kind of, you know, working with British independents. So something that I quite like to do, which was uh, an idea that was given to me by um, one of the uh, assemblers, uh, Christine at uh, Horologium, um, my, my watchmaking partners, was, you know, she suggested a, a coffee dial watch. So what, I've kind of taken this idea and I've, I've run with it in terms of what I'd like to do is create a couple of different coffee star watches, whether it's an espresso or a flat white. And in order to, to get these watches, it'll be a case of these are, are experience exclusive dials where if as part of the, the offering, as part of the launch, people can go along um, to my, you know, to, to my assembly partners and get you know be able to assemble their watch and they can select you know of the dial whether it's from the core range or whether it's from one of these uh coffee uh coffee dialed watches can go and, and experience um that process get to assemble their, their watch themselves um and uh yeah if, if this kind of idea does you know does move forward it'll be a case of having a, a a totally un, unique watch that if some you know if if someone sees it if someone comes along to to the red bar manchester and sees hey that looks like a studio underdog but i've never seen that before you know they can say well this is you know this is something unique this is something that that i assembled myself and and horology is all about storytelling and that's something that you know i think is a really exciting story really fun again something that i don't really know if anyone else is is offering um, I think you can go to, to Bremont and assemble a watch, but I think it's then disassembled afterwards and, and put back for the next person. And it's, you know, I think being able to kind of keep your watch and, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think will be a, a really interesting one, um, a project to do. So so we'll see. You've, you've got that out of me. How's that? <laughs> I love it. I love the fact we got a scoop. I love the idea. I think it sounds brilliant. And if you need any help promoting it or pioneering it, let me know. I would love to have a go myself. Okay, quick one while I've got you over a barrel. Can we do a collaboration together for a good cause at some point, please, mate? <laughs> I'm always keen to do uh, collaborations for good causes. You know, uh, the, the, some of my favorite projects that I've done, and uh, I've done two now, uh, one being the aubergine and, and another that I did um, towards the end of last year, which was was a pumpkin watch. And both of those were, were purely charity focused. It's something that, you know, whilst I have the opportunity that, you know, that, I, that I'm able to do is something that I I'm always interested uh, to do it and put in put the work in for for a good cause. So yeah, absolutely. Shoot me, uh, shoot me some ideas, and uh, we can see uh, what can be done for uh, for a great cause. I will do, mate. Thanks very much for your time. That was one of the easiest hours I've ever spent on the mic. It's going to take basically two minutes to edit this whole thing because you're such a fluid speaker and you present the brand so well. And I'm really grateful for you spending the time with me this morning. If any of our listeners have questions for Richard. You can get in touch via the usual channels. You can find me on Instagram at Rob Nudds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or my regular co-host, Alan Ben-Joseph, at A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Or you can send us an email at either rob at the 
therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show. We'll be back soon with another Q&A session. Until then, stay safe and keep on ticking. Thank you.